A year into the pandemic, people across the world are starting to receive vaccines. And with the vaccine comes a sense of renewal and hope for the future. But every nation is inoculating citizens at different rates, and that makes travel a challenge. It is still limited here and abroad. This has kept families apart and devastated industries. So how does one navigate towns, cities, countries when parts of the population are vaccinated against COVID-19 and others aren't? Some governments are exploring the idea of a vaccine passport. The European Union proposed one, still subject to the agreement of its member states, this week. Israel, which has vaccinated its citizens at the fastest pace in the world, has adopted this policy, and not just for travel. Passholders can enter public venues closed to people without one. The Biden administration is examining the idea, but it poses thorny ethical questions about whether a safer emergence from the pandemic is worth creating a two-tiered system of haves and have-nots. With us to discuss all of this is Brian Del Monte, president of the Aviation Agency, a marketing firm that provides advertising, marketing, and social media services to leaders in the aviation industry. He is also a former director at the United States Department of Defense with expertise in government policy. We now turn to Brian for his thoughts on what it might mean to have life governed by your health status. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So explain to our listeners, what is a vaccine passport? Well, we'll have to see what ultimately happens. Uh, But the problem that everyone's trying to solve is making sure that individuals entering countries have indeed been given an effective uh, vaccination against COVID-19. In this country, people are getting little cards from the CDC that says, I got Pfizer on this date, or I got Moderna, or you know, ultimately, as Johnson & Johnson rolls out, I got the uh, J&J vaccine on this date, you know, and here's who gave it to me. And so the problem that everyone's trying to solve is making sure that people crossing uh, borders have been vaccinated in order to uh, reduce the spread of the uh, virus. Right. And right now, you pretty much can't cross international borders unless you have a good reason to do so, with some exceptions. But that's not the only thing advocates of vaccine passports are talking about in terms of their use is international travel. It, c- it could go far beyond that. It could. Uh, and I'm kind of holding my my uh, uh, fire on that until we see what actually uh, transpires. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of concerns about what vaccination data will be. I share those concerns. Um, ultimately, it's going to have to get worked out. There is a framework that exists as it is. Um, if, for example, if you're traveling to a place where yellow fever may be uh, an issue, you have to have proof of that vaccination, right? So I think actually the first step is going to be this notion of just being able to prove your vaccinations. But that said, you know, there's a lot of health data wrapped up in all this. There's a lot of thorny political issues wrapped up in all this. And yeah, I, I don't think it'll be an easy road to get there in the end. 
So some countries are already doing this, right? Israel is doing this. Um, I think I heard Denmark is doing this. And is it for international travel if you want to get on a plane to leave the country or cross the border, or is it beyond that? Well, my understanding of how Israel is using it right now is uh, to basically be out and about and congregate. You have to demonstrate you've been vaccinated. And there's been discussion uh, in this country about not allowing interstate travel um, without vaccination. I don't know that we're ultimately going to get there. Uh, But the people who are using it now are essentially using it to differentiate the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. And the vaccinated are being given greater travel liberty and greater access liberty than the non-vaccinated. That's how I see it being used right now. And is the idea that this is a temporary measure that is in place when we're in this current situation where some people are vaccinated and some have not had the opportunity to be, um, where does it go when everyone has had the chance to be vaccinated and hopefully we've reached a state of herd immunity? Given what's happened in the past, I think we can make some predictions about the future. Uh, When we get to a point where mass vaccination against COVID is commonplace, and when COVID stops being a pandemic and becomes endemic, then I don't think there's going to be this great focus focus on uh, vaccination passports because the risk, let's say we're going to Canada. Right? We're going to our northern, our northern uh, neighbors. They don't ask to demand to see your measles, mumps, rubella, you know, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, you know, vaccinations. Why? Well, because the risks of both countries having or not having that vaccination are approximately equivalent. Okay, there's widespread vaccination in Canada. There's widespread vaccination in the United States. Yes, there are people in both countries who refuse to get vaccinated for various reasons, but we don't think that those people present a biological or epidemiological risk. So we don't ask each other's citizens when we're traveling borders, right, uh, for those shots. But again, going back to yellow fever, we do ask for that. And before smallpox was eradicated, we would ask for smallpox vaccination records. Um, So I do think we get to a point where this document is going to become less salient, at least I hope so. But this is probably not the last pandemic we're going to deal with as well. So we're probably going to need to build an infrastructure in place, you know, to deal with it. Right. I mean, we're seeing across the world that some countries are doing a lot better at vaccinating their people than others. Um, Europe is lagging behind the United States, for example. Uh, The developing countries are hardly started in their vaccination. So one can see the argument for this for international travel between places that have widely divergent levels of vaccination. But if this were to be something domestically where you need this vaccine passport to go to the movies, to uh, go to the theater, to go to school, to go to work, um, as you mentioned, Israel um, is imposing it in some of those situations. I mean, doesn't that end in May? Uh, Joe Biden has said we're all going to be able to get the vaccine in May. This country has a different set of laws, a different set of experiences, and a different set of expectations about privacy than, say, Israel or some other part of the world. I don't think it is a workable policy regime in this country to say you can't go A, B, or C unless you have a vaccination card. 
okay, unless you can demonstrate you're vaccinated. I just, I just don't think that's that's where things will will stay politically. Or, and I also think the litigation around something like that would force would force that regime to be unworkable. Uh, but I do think for international travel, there's a lot more latitude to regulate, you know, foreign nationals coming into your country. So I would expect uh, it's travel's going to be, international travel's going to be impeded. And as you pointed out, various regions of the world are, you know, either farther or shorter down the road of total vaccination. And so the parts of the world that lag behind are going to get locked out for a period of time. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen the airlines. Um, their their international routes have been severely curtailed in their international revenue. And so you can see why they might support this to get those travelers back on airplanes. But on the other hand, they're they're against this when it comes to domestic travel, which is already free and unimpeded. Well, you know, the 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 airlines, unfortunately, have been between a rock and a hard place on a lot of this, okay? Um, and what I'm saying is not designed to make a political statement. It's really more of an observation on how two different presidents handled things, and so the responses of the airlines. Trump took, I would say, a laissez-faire approach of, you figure it out, and eventually everything will be fine, okay? The airlines were like, if we don't convince people it's safe to fly, then we're going to collapse. So they were out, we'll do testing, right? And that's where you saw all those ad hoc kind of testings at airports between airlines and the airports. And we'll make sure everyone wears a mask and we're cleaning everything 20 times an hour, et cetera, et cetera. Because there was no national kind of like top cover as to well, what should we be doing? We have to make people feel safe. What should we be doing? So absent national directives, the airlines tried to fill the void. Um, now you have with President Biden, a much different approach in that he believes uh, in what I would consider a, a more neo-institutionalist federal, you know, the federal government will drive this solution, et cetera, et cetera. So now the airlines are recoiling back going, wait a minute, we don't want to have to be the tip of the spear to ensure everyone's vaccinated. And we don't want airline tickets to be messed up because, you know, you're going to tell people they have to have a shot. So this is why they're schizophrenic in their approach. What they want people to believe is that it's safe to fly and they want people who want to go somewhere to be able to buy a ticket and go somewhere. That's their interest. This is a real possibility. The Biden administration has asked federal agencies to explore the options here. This is on the table, not just for travel, but for other uh, uses in, within the borders of the United States. And it raises a lot of questions. I mean, we're seeing that vaccine hesitancy or at least vaccine take-up is, sl is slower and lower in minority communities. We've spent the past year, uh, you know, d deliberating over systemic racism and its, its existence in the country. I mean, this, if this were imposed, it would exacerbate that, wouldn't it? Would it not? I, I, would, th I would think it has at least the potential to do so. I mean, it will cause cleavages of haves and have-nots in terms of the vaccination. Um, it, it will exacerbate political wounds over class, race, access to health care, and everything else. So I wouldn't see how it wouldn't exacerbate those problems. Um, just one thing, though, I'd point out is that, you know, President Biden saying to various agencies, I want you to look at this, is not the same as President Biden saying, I want you to make this happen. 
Okay. When they look at it, they very may conclude that this is not worth the effort at this moment. If they can win over more and more people to the idea of being vaccinated, then the travel vaccine passport for, you know, domestic travel is irrelevant. Okay. I think the whole reason why they're looking at the issue is to gain um, analytical leverage over these people who are hesitant, who will have access to the vaccine, who won't get it for a whole myriad of reasons. And so the federal government will use carrots and sticks to get people to do things uh, that it wants to see behaviors happen. And this is true for states as well as individuals. And so it may be, look, you know, you're not going to get federal goodies unless you achieve a certain vaccination level in your state or something. So who, who knows how they're going to ultimately try to roll this out. But I don't think it's a case of viral containment so much as it is a, a carrot and stick to try to get people to get the shot. Right, that's quite quite a stick. Um, considering that that a lot of the vax the people who are hesitant to get the vaccine are are so because they are distrustful of government, and if and if the government is telling them, well, you need this passport in order to go into a movie theater or to go into your office or to ride the subway, it seems like you're more likely to get a revolt than compliance. Well, you know, the political scientist in me can't but help agree with your observation, right? What we don't, especially in light of what we saw on January 6th, where we saw, you know, essentially individuals who shouldn't have a grievance storming the Capitol, right, and demanding satisfaction and violence, you know, among other things. Um, So we're in this period of time, right, where there is this deep-seated psychological uh, belief in the invalidity of our institutions and our government policies. And so we have like 40% of this country is suspicious whether or not it should take the vaccine at all. That's, you know, that's a really unusual situation. Nobody was like, oh, geez, I'm not going to get the measles shot. I mean, yeah, people were, but it wasn't 40%. Even now, it's still a month, you know, even Children being born right now, most are going to get vaccinated for because of the benefits. I mean that 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 raises another point, though. I mean, children, there is no vaccine for anyone under the age of sixteen right now. So if you were to impose some uh, any sort of vaccine passport, unless you made an exception for them, they wouldn't be able to do whatever was needed. You know, they wouldn't be able to do whatever activity required the passport. Well, yes. And, you know, minors are often kept in the charge of their parents or guardians. Um, and if I understand the, the epidemiology of COVID, if adults were all vaccinated, even if the children are carriers, even if the children are spreaders, it wouldn't matter because they're in contact with individuals who should show high degrees of immunity from developing any kind of severe illness or in the case of like the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines, developing any illness at all, right? It's like 96% effective or something, 95% effective. So, um, you know, that's, that's less of an issue, I think, in terms of the children, but, you know, it, it does raise this point, this, this political question, especially with the lockdowns, with the curfews, you know, some of these other things that government have done has done in this, you know, you can't coercively force an adult to get a shot. 
you have to incentivize them somehow, right? Now, the government has tremendous authority under public health law and under Supreme Court opinions about public health, okay? And so it's mostly stick, not carrot. When you look at those decisions and you look at those those laws, it's all stick, not carrot. Um, you know, I think, you know, in part, this is why I think people were frustrated with the CDC uh, and its recent guidance is, look, if I get the shot and I can't go where I want to go, well, then what's the point, Vanessa? Why am I getting this? I mean, the other point, the other point here, though, is, uh, you know, the fear of a slippery slope, that if I am handing over my private medical information to the government and they are issuing me some sort of ID card, that, you know, why not do it, make sure I got the flu shot this year, make sure, you know, I, I am up to date on my measles vaccine, um, that it could go into those other areas. It, it very well could. Um, and for me, uh, I've actually, I'm less concerned about vaccination records because, I mean, for most adults in their lives, they do have to demonstrate vaccinations at certain times in their lives. Anybody who's gone to any college that receives federal funding, you have to demonstrate you're vaccinated before you enter. Okay, I have an oldest who just is at the U now, University of Minnesota. She had a, you know, even though we had done all these vaccines, there were like a couple we had missed that apparently she didn't have. So now she had them and then she was able to go. So, you know, it's if you serve, when I was in in the Pentagon, um, I routinely had to get influenza shot. And I routinely got, even times I got, you know, tested for tuberculosis or other things that I may have been exposed to. Okay, so it's not uncommon in the federal workplace to be asked to do these things. The question, you know, but the question is data privacy, health records, but I'm more concerned like when they were doing testing because when they swab your nose, it doesn't have to just be COVID they test for, right? Once they have that, and where's that data? Now, I'm not saying, let me just be clear. I'm not conspiratorial and I'm not saying the government's got some repository of your data and I don't believe any of that, but it could. Right. And so all of these questions about how this is going to be handled is totally legitimate. Yeah. I mean, is this something where it would take greater international cooperation? I mean, if you're going to be uh, imposing rules on, on crossing borders that require a card, um, if one country is not involved, how, you know, how do you cope with that? Well, yes. I mean, and, you know, again, um, Trump wasn't oriented that way by NIS. Biden's a neo-institutionalist. Trump was essentially autarkic, essentially. Um, just like when we rolled out real ID, just like when we rolled out the new U.S. passports after 9-11 and we asked other countries to roll out enhanced security passports, that was an international institutional effort. It's probably going to be the same here. Yeah, what about Congress? I mean, uh, might there be a role for it on this issue? Oh, there's a tremendous role for it because all of the things involving, I mean, well, Governor Cuomo's in hot water for a whole bunch of other reasons. I found his whole, I'm closing off the state of New York to anyone who wanted to enter at the height of the crisis as a violation of interstate commerce. States right. don't get and to all, do that. And most states now have yeah. travel restrictions. Right. And states don't get to do that. Interstate commerce is very clearly regulated by one entity. Congress. Okay. And the Supreme Court has enshrined that power. And it's very broad and it's very powerful. So Congress has a tremendous role to play in this if it wants to. Yeah. So, so Brian, what's your prediction? Where are we going with this vaccine passport? 
I think that the primary concern that everyone wants is they want each other's people to come into their countries and spend money and travel and do, you know, uh, 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 touristy stuff and whatnot, but they don't want to increase the spread of the virus. And they want to slow down the rate of variants entering and, and spreading. So the focus of the vaccine is going to be on, did you legitimately get the shot or not? I really think that's ultimately what this endeavor is going to be confined to. And again, I have a pretty good basis, I think, for that prediction when I look at how we've dealt with inoculations data in other crises and in other, in other diseases that still persist today. You know, we're not using this as some sort of instrument of control. We want to know before you enter Britain, have you been vaccinated? Before you enter Canada, have you been vaccinated? Eventually, you'll get to the point in the United States where most people have been vaccinated. The, the COVID is endemic, not pandemic, and COVID is manageable through testing and palliatives and you know emergency care and all these other things. And we're not going to be as worried about it. But then the discussion is going to probably turn to, well, how do we get ready for the next one? And that's where the fight will be in terms of what kind of institutions, what kind of policies do we create in order to spot the next one and restrict it from traveling as quickly as COVID did. Thanks so much, Brian. We appreciate you joining the show. Thank you. That's all for this episode of CQ Future. I'm Sean Zeller. You can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com or your favorite podcast app. 